Hello, and welcome to the Friday Reporter. I'm Lisa Camuso Miller, your host, and proud to be partnering with PR Daily. Because PR Daily is a tremendous resource for communicators, not only for tactics and tools that make us smarter at what we do, but also for conferences and events that can help us connect with others who are doing what we uh, do every day. And that's why I'm really looking forward to November 17th. They're hosting a conference called The Future of Communications, partnering with Ragon Communications. You can find out more about it on prdaily.com. In fact, you can also get $100 off your registration if you use the code FRIDAYREPORTER. Well, thanks so much for joining me today for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Today's episode is with Sarah Carlin Smith, who is now with The Pink Sheet. That is just an extraordinary resource for information about really the broader healthcare uh, business, but more specifically the pharmaceutical space. And I'll let Sarah talk to us a little bit more about how that looks and how it is that um, that reporting for this great publication is for her. Sarah, thanks for being with me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So Sarah, tell me a little bit, I know you spent five or more years at Politico reporting really sort of um, very closely in this space. Talk to me a little bit about your background. How did you get into journalism and how did you start reporting in this really super specific policy uh, coverage? So I studied journalism in college, um, although I think at, at different times throughout that process, I, always, I wasn't always completely sure I wanted to do journalism once I left college, but I always knew I liked writing and communicating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that like when you're in journalism, there's always something new going on. You're always a bit open to learning new things every day. It just keeps your work life mm-hmm. um, very like fresh and always intellectually interesting. Um, I graduated <laughs> during the financial crisis. Oh, I didn't initially um, start out in journalism, um, but then when I realized I wanted to go back about a year to two years later, I started looking around for jobs, um, and I started actually finding a lot of different like opportunities and publishing um, outlets like I'd never heard of growing up, right? They're not the big name newspapers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I started realizing there's all these sort of niche um, journalism jobs, particularly in DC, where, you know, you can report on the environment, you can report on healthcare, you can everything, you know, people now also see like a vertical in and Politico Pro, for example, you know, there are have been for years, um, in some cases, hundreds of years, you know, these niche publications covering different policy areas mm-hmm. for people in that business or somehow connected to that world that really need that insider knowledge. And um, at the time, I was really into like food policy and how it impacted the environment. Oh, and I yeah. stumbled ac- across this publication called FDA News, which didn't do actually very much on the food side, mm. but I ended up getting kind of an um, entry level job there and kind of progressed a little bit um, in that realm and started covering the drug industry closely. Um, and it just it was fascinating to me. It's, you know, healthcare and health policy impacts everybody right. in your life. So it, um, it was hard for me not to find it interesting. And sure. it mixes science and politics and business. Um, and eventually um, that led me to my first job at the pink sheet. And then um, moved over to Politico when they were trying to expand their coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, their health team had sort of 
grown out of the covering the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare right. debate, and was always very centered around that. And as you know, things were changing, um, they realized they wanted to kind of expand it to think about covering other parts of healthcare, like FDA so development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was there for five years, and then I um, decided to go back to the pink sheet and you know so I've sort of spent the last decade plus at this point kind of following um healthcare health policy and politics from a very um pharmaceutical focused perspective well you're really good at it and it is really complex and I I know I've said it and I'll say it again I mean I read your coverage and I'm always incredibly impressed with the level of connection and understanding of how the process works because look I'm a consumer of the healthcare marketplace and I understand, you know, how it works for my family and for in my life, but it is, it is really, really hard to understand how that, how it all intersects. And because as you said, I mean, it really is very political because people know enough to understand that it's going to affect them. Um, You really have a hard job and that you have to try to weave you know, the data together in a way that people, you know, in industry, but also outside of industry who care about these issues more specifically can understand it and then, you know, act on it if they need to. Pink Sheet is a publication that folks like you and I are familiar with, but tell me a little bit about the the company and the business and the kind of work that Pink Sheet is dedicated to. So, um, the pink sheet um, is it's more than a hundred years old. Yeah, it actually yeah. used to be printed on pink paper. I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, they've just really deeply covered the drug industry and the healthcare space for years. And like I said, before the proliferation of the internet and, you know, certain accessibility that made it possible for many, many more publications to kind of get into these niche beats um and they've grown and changed over time from a small family business to now we're a part of um a bigger company mm-hmm. called Informa um and Informa um I mean I don't they they do tons of things but like in terms of like the publishing side mm-hmm. um they have a number of different they own a number of different publications right right um in the trade publication space like t- covering shipping and aviation and then in the pharmaceutical space, you know, we, we have journalists like us, and then they also have other sort of product offerings for people that I think um, we all kind of complement each other. So they'll have like databases mm-hmm. um, where researchers are compiling various information that's also helpful to people working in this space. So it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's definitely interesting because it's a little bit different um, than being um, – just at a journalism only company. Right. Well, and and I have to believe that that's a resource that's super valuable to you because as you do your reporting, you have access to a lot of information that maybe other um, publications do not. It's interesting you say Pink Sheet is, they consider themselves to be a trade publication. Um, and I have always felt that way. I worked for a, sh- a short time in the pharmaceutical um, space in, in New Jersey, which is obviously hometown for you and me, but, um, but also a place where many of our big pharmaceutical companies work and reside and continue to do their business. So pink sheet used to arrive on my desk in its, uh, salmon color, um, form that it arrived in not quite salmon pinky. It was pinkish anyway, but it was great. And it was so deep and thoughtful and 
it was a must read for people inside the industry. And so you have to get it right because they really do understand what it is you're reporting on and what it is you're caring about. Yeah. I mean, I think, like I said, um, you know, kind of growing up and being interested in journalism and being in school, I just did not have an, an appreciation for the wide a range of kind of ways you could do journalism and mm-hmm. these different types of journalists that took out outlets. And one of the things when I'm talking to young people interested in this business is whether you think like you'd be interested in working for this kind of publication long term or short term, you get such a um, depth of experience um, covering a topic or area and you build up this knowledge base that really becomes valuable Mm -hmm. um, for the rest of your career. And I think, you know, maybe 20 years ago, if you were studying journalism, people would say, okay, go to school or write for your college newspaper and then maybe go find like a small local newspaper and kind of cut your teeth there. And then you can kind of move your way up. And the reality is, um, unfortunately for people who follow this is that the you know sort of the local smaller newspaper writing places to write as a young journalist just don't exist anymore and Mm -hmm. you have to figure out how to in many cases break into this business differently and i i always sort of bring this up as one of um i think it is a good way to break in and particularly if you can if you find yourself fascinated by any of the many an issue (laughs) area well yeah there's there's the inside uh fda or was it, it there's there, I know there's inside EPA. What was the FDA publication you said that you were at when you first started? I was at FDA News, but the right there's also another um, publication called um, Inside Health Policy, and they have right. the FDA section. And I mean, just there's so I, many. I, I know reporters now, you know, cover covering everything from banking very closely mm-hmm. to oil and gas. There's just there's so many. Um, job opportunities if you're willing to think a little bit more differently than just like do I go to a um you know that traditional traditional publication newspaper and then oftentimes I did find being at Politico I know that they really valued that kind of training that people get there and if you look at the histories or the resumes of a lot of people on their sort of policy beats you'll often find that um they, you know, started out really at one of these publications yeah. that kind of gives you that Absolutely. Depth of knowledge. That's so true. It's true for the healthcare space. It's true for the energy space. I'm true for, I'm sure in many, many other verticals, that's where people come from, from those great trade pubs. What are you, what do you care specifically about in your coverage? What kinds of, if, if folks are looking to reach out, if they're looking to pitch a story to you, Sarah, what kinds of stories are you really more focused on these days? I mean, there's no lack of healthcare stories, I know for sure, but your beat is, is very specific. So tell me a little bit about what the kinds of issues you care about. So what I really feel like I cover is this intersection of the regulatory world. So covering agencies like the Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Medicare and Medicare Services with how it impacts drug companies, drug developers, then the people that pay for drugs in the U.S. So, you know, all the health insurance companies and government payers and then the interaction with Capitol Hill. So how that sort of world comes together. Um, So I kind of split my time between covering more of the drug development side of things. So how medicines actually get developed and how that's regulated and they get approved. And then thinking about sort of the coverage and access issues and how much, how how they're priced and who gets access to them. Um, 
and so forth. And of course, obviously right now, a lot of coverage is dominated by the current pandemic Mm -hmm. and um, COVID-19 and vaccine development and administration. But um, there's certainly lots of other hot topics in this area. Oh yeah, no, there's never a lack. Yeah, there's never a lack of... Drug drug pricing on the Hill is a big thing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are two big, two big things we've got going for us. But there's Um, You know, the FDA's um, user fee bills for prescription drugs and other types of medicines are going to be up in about a year. And um, as amazing as this might seem to some people, like our publication has already been covering that process um, for probably over a year Mm -hmm. as the FDA and industry does some work to get it to the point where then the um, hill will kind of take over from there. So there's a lot going on. Yeah. And the process is is really intense, and there's a lot of players involved. There's um, in the regulatory space, and also in the legislative space. There has to be some cooperation, or the implementation. You know, the, if they don't talk, then it gets done wrong. Then people get hurt, and things don't go well. So it's really there is a lot of uh, back and forth, and it's important to have uh, some you know light shown on. Um, on how that interaction comes together. We talked a little bit about the pandemic. I know, um, just like everybody else, you were doing your your life and your work from home, and you also have a little person in your house. Tell me a little bit about what uh, 2020, 2021 has looked like for you as a reporter, because so much of what you do really does count on these interactions with with folks you've worked with. Yeah, I mean, definitely um, the sort of move to stay at home was interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, My daughter was still an infant at the time, and luckily we sort of had the foresight, and my mom was available to come down to New Jersey. Love it. She she packed for um, two weeks Mm -hmm. and ended up staying more than six months. That's amazing. Um, We had to, you know, um, give her some new clothes and stuff along the way. Um, I can't imagine, you know, I really feel for all the parents who went through that process without that kind of help and support, because um, if you can imagine a um, baby of that age doesn't really um, appreciate, you know, when you're on an important interview or something. No, it's time Um, to eat, mom. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard. I guess the other thing, I mean, it is very different, I think, as a journalist, um, to not be out and about meeting with people, whether it's just kind of like having casual coffees or going to meetings in person where then you kind of have these, all these like sort of side interactions and you meet new people and new sources of information. And um, I don't know, sometimes I just find it can be tiring watching meetings online in a way that's more lively in person. For sure. Um, and then um, obviously, you know, I know people are starting to go back to the Hill now, but since I'm not like, super tied to hill coverage i haven't been there much lately but that's very different because again you don't have that like instantaneous kind of um interaction with lawmakers and going through um other people in their office and And the government is not the government's not back in so it's not as if you can go to public hearings and conversations all those things are are they still virtual I know that for like congressional hearings there are some hearings where they have limited capacity but they're still in many cases you know, they're not urging everybody to come. Right. No. So again, if you feel like you don't really need to be there, there's there's some kind of public health impetus to not be there. Mm-hmm. No, for FDA, sure. FDA certainly has done all of its um, meetings um, remotely, CDC, um, some of their big meetings related to COVID, they're all remote. And um, 
oh, there's been lots of technical issues along the way. And sometimes it's sort of strange because I know like when CDC holds their meetings for whatever reason, like they have lots of people speaking, but they're not on video. And sometimes I find that much harder to figure out who's speaking. Right. Well, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so there's just lots of little minor inconveniences. I mean, for the most part, I do feel lucky that, you know, I was able to keep keep having a job and a job that was actually very yes. important during this crisis and very. also to be able to do it in a, you know, a safe way. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause obviously there, you know, lots of people that, um, you know, either lost their job or went, had, you know, really put themselves in dangerous positions at some point to mm-hmm. be able to keep working. And so. some people had to opt out of the workforce for that very reason that you mentioned. And that's that they had little people at home and they couldn't manage both. And that's that's a hard decision to make, too. Um, so it, right. it definitely had a, everyone was impacted. And that's always kind of why, because I, this little podcast was born in the pandemic. I like to talk about that because I know, you know, we've figured out how to how to do that. And our kids are now finally back to school. But it was 18 months that they were home. And that's got all kinds of impacts that, you know, are sort of playing out here, too. Um, tell me, though, because you covered healthcare during a global pandemic, which we have not yet been alive for. Is there any coverage? Is there any story? Is there anything that stands out to you as one that you were especially proud to work on? Ooh, that's a tough question. Yeah, um, I'm sure there was a lot. And, and But is there something that you think, um, you know, that you felt like you really were proud to have been part of that? Um, whew. There's been a lot of... Um, I guess, controversial Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, decisions that have gone on around drug products um, and so forth cleared during the... um, You mean the fast-tracking of some of these things? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And not the vaccine so much, but some of the other like therapeutics and stuff. And, um, you know, I think I was early on sort of proud of some of my coverage because it was very like sort of foresaw some of the problems that were going to happen early on. That makes sense. Yeah. So, for example, um, when Gilead's um, antiviral remdesivir was kind of cleared to help um, people um, who were dealing with COVID in the hospital, Mm -hmm. um, one concern raised in the story I wrote was just that um, that we would never get the better data we wanted on the drug along the way Mm -hmm. by the initial clearance. And um, interesting, that's been sort of a um, persistent problem brought up throughout this. crisis is like we sort besides the vaccines where we've done a really good job of getting the answers and getting the data we want Mm -hmm. um there hasn't been um this like effort in the u.s to really concentrate the research and make sure we do the research in a way that gets really great actionable results um and the uk in particular has gotten a lot of praise for sort of organizing their research Mm -hmm. around um product development in a way that they did get better answers in the U.S. And so those that's something that um, we sort of picked up on early on. And I think it's going to be something that U.S. policymakers and people at the FDA and so forth will be addressing long after COVID because it's oh, yeah. um, it's something that, will, you know, again, it, it will be important to figure out how to better address this for future oh, situations, for sure. not yeah. just pandemics. No, and the autopsy on all of this will be long. Um, I have to believe that there will be a lot of reflection on how those processes work. I mean, nothing nothing surprised me more than having, you know, uh, telephone conversations with folks that seem to have a really solid understanding of the FDA and how the process works. And, you know, 
before the pandemic, they had no information at all about that. So folks have had to get very smart. Um, and I know that it's coverage of, of the con- you know the content that you produce that actually has helped people sort of understand that better and be better informed. Um, my my favorite character of all, uh, and you know I I've probably said it before on the podcast is definitely Dr. Fauci. Uh, I think he is one of the heroes of this whole um, this whole thing, the whole pandemic. It's so fun to watch this you know, gentleman who obviously has a long, long career and, you know, to be involved and to be part of it. And I especially love that he has this great Brooklyn accent. So as a kid from the Northeast, I especially enjoyed that during all of the time that um, this has, you know, sort of evolved and it's changed so much, right? I mean, we don't have to get into the back and forth and how it was handled under one administration or another, because we could spend a whole month talking about all of that. But I think that the one thing that inspired me most was that that's where I was finding leadership was on the government and the, on the, the science side of the government and the NIH and the CDC and some of these other places folks were speaking up. They were talking about what folks should be considering and that was definitely appreciated on the consumer side, at least. Yeah. It's, it's certainly sort of amusing to me coming from, you know, this world that many people were not that aware of before yeah. the pandemic. And now all of a sudden Dr. Fauci right, is this household name and <laughs> you can buy like Fauci, you know, like memorabilia, bobbleheads or t-shirts yeah. and it's, it's, <laughs> Um, certainly interesting how our culture, our culture is is unique. Mm -hmm. No question. No question. So, uh, when you put up your hat and you're not writing about, uh, complex healthcare issues and the FDA and, and a variety of other pharmaceutical issues, what kinds of things are keeping you guys busy on the weekends? This is the Friday reporter. I always like to ask, like, is there something you like to do on the weekend here in Washington, DC? So folks know, uh, what maybe they can plan for their weekend. I have to say, it might not be super exciting. I feel like we spend a lot of time with um, my toddler now. Of course, parks. at the parks, at all the, the parks. And we're lucky we have many. We have so many. The pool this summer, mm-hmm. definitely missing um, that that sort of season is over kind of for this area of the country. Yeah. Um, you know, um, when I can, I like to exercise it's been a little bit different during the pandemic in terms of what I feel comfortable doing in terms of going to classes and stuff but yeah I definitely don't feel like I have the most like exciting um no I only I but you know what makes me laugh is that like but but you're and you're sort of characterization of what your weekend looks like is what many of the guests have also said, right? Is that, look, I'm just trying to get out of my house. I'm trying to get my kids some exercise. I'm trying to like live my life. And I think the one thing that people don't know about Washington is like we have this tremendous park system and we have these beautiful trails and all these amazing resources where we can take our little people to, I mean, for a minute, their parks were closed and that was really a travesty. Thankfully that we're past that point, but there's been a lot of adjustment like in terms of even outdoor things we can do. And so that's the value I think is just, getting out there. Um, I know that I am not somebody who, uh, is a big camper. Uh, my husband is a, he loves it. Uh, we, um, have rented a camper and done some camping. So that's something that um, renting the camper, I think is mostly for me because I don't want to sleep on the ground, but we've done some different things that we probably wouldn't have done because it would allow us to be out and about, um, but not have to be sort of, you know, in crowds or doing other things that weren't really allowed during the pandemic. Right. And yeah, like you mentioned, one of the things I do love about D.C. is you can live in a city and have all the benefits of living in a city, including, you know, the public transportation and, you know, again, um, pandemic times, yeah. lots of museums and lots of restaurants and all this stuff. And then you can also disappear into Rock Creek Park and you're still actually, you know, 
right around the corner from all of this other culture and life and stuff, but you can feel like you've went out into the country for, you know, an hour or two. Yeah. Even if you get in the car and you drive for an hour, there's so many other tremendous resources. So it's a beautiful part of the country. And I think, you know, people sort of think of the Capitol or they think of the White House. And luckily we live here. So we know that those things are, those are our day jobs. But, you know, when we go to, when we turn off the computer at the end of the day or when we go out on a Friday or Saturday and take our people out with us. Um, we have tons of other really neat things to do. It's not, someone made a joke that it's certainly not the, the, the Hollywood characterization that you see where everybody's at a cocktail party or planning the downfall of the government. <laughs> it certainly doesn't happen around here. <laughs> Uh, well, Sarah, we've we've reached the end of our conversation, and the most important uh, question I have for you, and that, that's not really true, not the most important, but one that I find has really been a great way for me to keep the podcast growing and evolving and changing is I ask my reporter friends that I work with who you might recommend as a future guest for the podcast. Oh, this is such a tough question. Um Mostly because I've worked with so many you know, I know. interesting reporters and people over the years. One person that might be good um, for you to talk to that I was just sort of thinking about is Julie Robner at Kaiser Health News, who was at NPR for a long time, just because she's been covering the Hill and health policy for so long. She's just such an interesting perspective. And I think getting that kind of I would love that. historic look yeah. is a good one but I could probably think of it's just it's too hard to pick one name I know how to only pick I one know person. well I mean there's just so many ter- tremendous and as you said I mean Kaiser is a great publication and a publication that I have not yet talked to anybody there so that'll be another you know publication that we can then talk about what they do and how they work and what kinds of things she cares about and that's the real value but you're, to your point that's why this podcast has been so fun is because we do have so many great colleagues in this town that cover so many cool and different issues that the list of amazing journalists just continues to grow. But I'm grateful for the Julie recommendation and I'm really grateful for your time today. I'm really glad you were with me. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And there you have it. Another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. I'm so glad you joined me. And I'm so glad you're looking forward to the November 17th conference with PR Daily because I'll be there and a moderator for one of their great panels. Discover what's on the horizon at the Future of Communications virtual conference on November 17th. Learn the strategies, tactics, tools, and technology you'll need to position yourself well just in time for your 2022 communications planning. And don't forget, Friday Reporter is the code to use to get $100 off of your registration. We'll see you next week. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.